Welcome to the St. Emeline's Induction Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And in this episode, we'd like to tackle a really important issue in the emergency department, something that we're going to need every day for many of our patients. And that's the issue of pain relief. A lot of times the reason people present to us is because they are in pain. And one of our key jobs is to try and relieve that pain as best we can. So we're going to go through some of the simple things we can do and simple medications we can give to help take away patients' pain. Pain, absolutely incredibly important for our patients. If you ever see anybody who comes in in distress or if you ever see any of the concerns that people have had about their care in the emergency department, Access to good quality pain relief is really top of the agenda. So what we're going to do here is give you the basics, try and make you really good at this aspect of your job and also tell you perhaps some of the things that traditionally people do, which aren't that great, and perhaps introduce you to some of our pet hates when it comes to pain relief, because there are a few. Perhaps we should start by talking about how we judge how much pain somebody is in. So it does seem to me that we have a bit of an obsession with pain scores. Now, pain scores have a place in the emergency department, I would think, Simon. Where do you stand with these? They're pretty good in that they can give you a measure of somebody's pain, which is a self-reported thing. And we don't have a painometer. It would be great if we had a painometer. You could put it on the patient and say, this person has 8.6 out of 10 levels of pain. It just doesn't exist. But my experience is that there's lots of patients out there who you look at them and you think, oh my God, this patient is in agony. And you say, where are you on the pain scale? And they go, two. And you have to adjust for that. And then you also see people who are charging their phone in the waiting room, eating a packet of Quavers on the phone to the mates, ordering a pizza for when they get out of the department, who say they've got a pain scale of 11 out of 10. Pain scores are okay, but they do have their problems. And I think you definitely need a clinician to look at the patient as well and say, is this person's self-repeated pain score, does it feel right? Does it have face validity for this individual patient? And that brings in another aspect to pain, which isn't just the, if you like, physiological manifestation of nerve endings and other stuff, but actually a lot of our patients have fear and are scared. And that can add into their pain or perhaps the way they regard pain socially or within their cultural group. And all of this is part of how we need to adjust to what we need to give our patient. But in general, it would be my approach that you give as much pain relief as the patient needs to get them pain free. Judging from what the patient reports in terms of their scale, the condition that you're looking at and your assessment of how much pain they're in should give you a good guide to where to go. The other thing about pain ladders, when I look at a ladder, if I'm climbing up the side of my house, I always think that to get to the top, I have to start at the bottom. And so I've never really felt comfortable with the concept of a pain ladder because there are a lot of patients in whom you really want to get in right at the top because they've got severe levels of pain. So it's not something that you have to go through the motions of, you know, paracetamol, low level oral analgesia before you get to IV. If you've got somebody in severe pain, you should definitely intervene at top level and early. And that's the message we're trying to give you throughout all of these induction podcasts is get in there early and give the treatment the patient requires. So they don't have to go through the paracetamol non-steroidal route to deserve getting an opiate or getting IV analgesia. Get in there at the start and take their pain away. And as we always say, imagine it was you lying there with that pain or perhaps your relative, your mother, your child. What would you want them to have? And put yourself in their position and you'd want them to have the best pain relief we have on offer. And we are really lucky throughout the UK and emergency departments because generally we have access to great drugs. And perhaps we should get onto those now, Simon. The drugs definitely work. So we've got the basic type stuff and most of the departments will have your triage nurses who will be able to administer simple analgesia. So paracetamol, 
Don't underestimate it. It's a good drug. It's a good painkiller. We've got non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. We use ibuprofen, but there are others available. Um, and then you've got oral opiates such as codeine, dihydrocodeine. And I know that you have some thoughts on codeine, dihydrocodeine in the ED. Well, we've very much gone to dihydrocodeine. Codeine itself, it will work for some people, but there is a significant number, perhaps 5 or 10% who are unable to metabolise it. So it won't get any analgesic benefit whatsoever and will actually just get the side effects. So they still feel sick and they still feel a bit high, but no pain relief at all. We've moved to make it simple. Emergency medicine needs to be simple. So we start with the paracetamol and brufen type things and then add in dihydrocodeine. And it only needs to be 30 milligrams four times a day is the routine dose 60 adds nothing except side effects. So make it straightforward. We mentioned paracetamol and I think sometimes paracetamol isn't given the credit it's due. It's like buying a bottle of wine that has a relatively cheap looking label on it. Because the label looks cheap and perhaps you didn't spend as much money as you might have done, you don't think the wine's going to taste any good. And it's a bit the same with paracetamol. Because it's there and it's available and it only costs pence, I think patients sometimes don't think it's a good drug. I think it's a brilliant drug. So paracetamol, acetaminophen, whatever you want to call it, definitely give a decent dose of that. One gram orally and IV is really very straightforward to give and it's not as expensive as you think. So if they haven't got the ability to take medication orally, get in there with IV paracetamol as well. You mentioned non-steroidals. How do you choose which non-steroidal to give? You said brufen and I have to say that's the one we go for too. There are many, many different non-steroidals available. For oral use, we give ibuprofen. There are alternative non-steroidals which you can give IV, and we've got access to Toradol, which can give 30 milligrams over a few minutes. It's a very, very good non-steroidal for musculoskeletal pain and renal colic. Or you can give Voltrol, which is diclofenac, IV, but you have to dilute it up into a bag of fluid and run it over 20 minutes, so it's a bit of a pain. But intravenous non-steroidals are pretty good. And both the paracetamol and brufen, or paracetamol and non-steroidals, that idea of using those I think is really important. If you come across this concept of what we call balanced analgesia, so balanced analgesia means that if you want to use one drug to relieve pain, so say you just wanted to use morphine and they've got a lot of pain, maybe you'd have to use a lot of morphine and therefore you could start to run into some of the side effects if you're giving a big dose of a single drug. But if you give a balance of different drugs, so a bit of paracetamol, so you give a good loading dose of that and you give some non-steroidals as well and then on top of that you give the morphine as a balance, you're very unlikely to get a complication or a side effect of that morphine if the analgesic effect is balanced across a range of drugs. So I really like this idea of balanced analgesia, which is a really good reason not to underestimate the importance of giving paracetamol or non-steroidals early on. And we know that the use of drugs like paracetamol will reduce the amount of opiate you give. And it's summertime in the, here in the UK. If you think about the time you're in the hot sun, you fancy an ice cream. If you're to have three lumps of ice cream on your cone, you're going to feel pretty sick. But to have an ice cream with a bit of chocolate sauce and some sprinkles on top, that's the business. So just a little bit of everything will help Get the same effect you want without the side effects of feeling a bit sick. We've got paracetamol, really good drug, available orally or IV. We've talked about non-steroidals. Brufen is probably our preference where we work, but there are others available. Let's think a little bit more about opiates. We've mentioned the limitations of codeine, but then we're on to the IV routes. So morphine, really probably the drug of choice. Which patients need morphine? Those who've got moderate to severe pain, which is not controlled by other means, really. 
patients, there's a whole variety of different conditions, but significant fractures, significant abdominal pain, chest pain patients, etc. You'll know this group of patients. They've got significant pathology usually. They've got significant self-reported pain scales and they look as if they're in pain. So give them opiates, give it early and give them a reasonable dose. Intravenous morphine, we would be giving in an adult, getting 10 milligrams out and we'd be titrating that up until pain is relieved and continuing beyond 10 milligrams should it be required. 10 milligrams is often given as the dose and if it's enough that's great and if it's not enough people tend to stop and also people do crazy things like if they're pain-free at five milligrams continue giving another five milligrams this is a titrate to effect drug give two milligrams wait 60 seconds to two minutes give another milligram give another milligram give another milligram until the pain has resolved and the routine giving of antiemetics with morphine isn't necessary if you're careful with that titration. There's an, a great paper from the, I think it's in the EMJ a number of years ago, which shows that if you give an antiemetic with morphine, you get more vomiting and more nausea. So this whole idea of giving antiemetics, particularly things like metoclopramide, with morphine is insane. But I guarantee that there'll be people around the country who are routinely giving this or who are routinely being presented with the antiemetic when they request a morphine drug. So let's think where we've got to. So the idea of we're going to use a pain score that could be on a scale from one to 10. You might use a mild, moderate, severe score instead. We're going to get in there at the top of the ladder. We're not going to climb up to the top. We're going to be right there to treat the patient as they require it. And that may require opiates. And we may want to be giving IV morphine early. But we're going to balance that with giving other drugs, be that paracetamol and a non-steroidal. And those can also go in orally and IV. So very straightforward, three different methods to get to where we want to be with that ultimate aim of trying to relieve our patient's pain. Now, some people might worry, Simon, about the side effects, especially of the opiates. They worry about giving too much. They worry about stopping people breathing. What sort of environment do you feel these drugs should be given in? They need to be in a relatively well-monitored area. So we don't tend to give these drugs in the more minor's end of the department or in minor injuries. If patients are requiring intravenous opiates, we do tend to move into either resuscitation or the major's area of the department. In terms of dosage, the patient requires what the patient requires. And that's an assessment that you make at the bedside. If you're titrating the opiates in carefully, then you can do that in conjunction with what feedback you get from the patient. There is no particular upper limit. And certainly patients with incredibly painful conditions may require significant doses to achieve an adequate level of analgesia. There's no hard and fast rules here. I think this is really quite an important clinical decision, which requires a degree of clinical judgment and acumen and experience. So something that we need to work really hard to get good at, because if you think about why it is people come to see us, many of the times it's because... I'm in pain, doctor, and I want you to help. Now, we talked a little bit about the psychological aspects of pain as well. We won't go into it in too much depth, but how you approach the patient as well is also going to make a difference. So being reassuring, saying that you believe the pain relief is going to work, telling them that you're going to look after them, getting them in an environment that is controlled and they feel looked after will all add to the effect of your pain relief. So as we always say on St. Emlyn's, it's not just about the medicine, it's about being kind as well. And that can't be underestimated when we're talking about this. That's incredibly important, both for you as the physician, but everybody in the team should be extolling the same virtues. We should also think about non-pharmacological methods of pain relief, such as splintage, box splints, a sling for the arm for somebody who's got an injured arm, positioning, posture, comfortableness in the bed, a pillow. All of those things are incredibly important. And finally, of course, because in England, tea. Tea is a very, very important painkiller. Tea 
given to patients and their relatives is hugely important. But obviously, try to remember that if they need to go off and have an operation, the orthopaedic surgeon can sometimes get a bit shirty if you've just offered your patient a cup of tea and some toast. We can give medications via other routes. We're not just limited to the oral route and the IV route. We mentioned IM in passing, but I don't think that's a method that either of us is particularly keen on. Not at all, really. I think in the past, people used to give a lot of IM analgesia and it was largely because the IM route could be given by the nursing staff and therefore the doctor didn't have to go to the bedside. Occasionally IM routes will be given for certain drugs where intravenous access has been impossible. So in the past people have done it in uh, intravenous drug users where getting a cannula in could be very difficult or whether it's taking a long time to get intravenous access. I can kind of understand a little bit about that but in severe illness often the muscles aren't terribly well perfused and an uncertain absorption of drugs it's, it's just not a great route. I think in recent years, and really something we've transferred over from paediatric practice, is this concept of giving medications which can be absorbed through the buccal mucosa or through the intranasal mucosa. So intranasal diamorphine is something I'm increasingly using in adults for when we're having difficulty getting that early intravenous access. So somebody like a a sickle cell patient, they're often in a lot of pain. They often have difficulty getting intravenous access. So intranasal diamorphine is a great technique. And if you can't get hold of diamorphine, fentanyl works really well into the intranasal route as well. And the dosing is very straightforward. For the lighter patient, it's 50 micrograms. And for the heavier, more well-built patient, it's 100 micrograms. And you can use a mucosal atomizer device for that. But those can sometimes not be available. And just getting that dripped into the nose, like we used to do with children. Children, it turns out, are teaching us quite a lot of how we can look after adults. So the intranasal route's available as well. We didn't mention oromorph or oral morphine. The only thing I'd really like to point out about that is that it's got 30% bioavailability. So if you're going to give oromorph to a patient, you need to give a decent dose. The equivalent of 10 milligrams of IV morphine would be about 30 milligrams of oromorph. So don't underdose if you're depending on that oral route for whatever reason that might be. And then of course, we've got those other more advanced methods, which we'll come and talk about in the future, maybe local regional blocks, things like fascioiliaca blocks and fractured neck of femurs. Those are all really, really useful. But when it comes to the things we really want our doctors and nurses to be thinking about at the beginning, it's those simple things. Because as we've always said, in emergency medicine, often the simple things work the best. So with those things we've discussed already, Ian, we've got paracetamol, non-steroidals, we've got oral opiates, we've got intravenous morphine, we've tried to avoid the IM route. And in all honesty, that's going to cover, what, 95% of the patients who come through the door, I would say. And that's great. There'll be that small proportion of who you need to do more for. And we're going to talk about that in future podcasts. But at this stage, if, if these techniques have not resolved the pain, go and find a senior doctor and explore what the next stage is with them. It's probably also worth... Gosh, I always get a bit worried about these bits, but giving you a few of our pet hates. So there are a few behaviours which we see in regard to analgesia, which they're not good medicine. So in our opinion, this is our opinion. It's only our opinion. You may get different views. But in our opinion, there are certain things that people do that are not good practice. So number one for me, buscopan is not a painkiller. What we've said is that we have good pain relief that we know works that is available to us. So for me, sometimes these other agents and buscopan is only one of them are just a reason to not give the real stuff. Try not to use these other things that probably aren't going to help. So buscopan would be up there. If a patient has abdominal pain, they need decent pain relief as described before. And please (laughs) I'm hoping this has gone out of practice now, but certainly when I was studying and when I first started in emergency medicine, 
we used to sometimes get the message that, oh, we shouldn't give pain relief because then we can't assess the patient. This is not true. You can give pain relief, make the patient more comfortable, and their clinical examination is still worthwhile. If anything, it's probably more accurate. So please don't be persuaded that the idea of not giving pain relief helps somehow to delineate what condition that patient has. I think if anybody ever does that in my department, they get a a very, very large dose of learning and I'm really very unhappy if that ever happens. Okay, so let's have a think about some other ones. Tramadol. You're a big fan of Tramadol, Ian? Again, not one of my favourites. I think Tramadol can be useful in small groups of patients, sometimes in perhaps the post-operative period. But remember, we're talking about the emergency department where our patients are already in pain. This isn't the situation where we're trying to predict pain. We know you've just had an operation. We're going to give you something. And in my experience, Tramadol is just a way to make people sick. And as we always say, we've got the stuff we know works. So not a massive fan of Tramadol. Okay. Other stuff which has fallen out of favour in recent years, and I think quite rightly so, is uh, pethidin. Pethidin's a really good emetic with uh, some analgesic side effects. And it's just not a great drug in comparison to morphine. Morphine's a great drug, so there are virtually no circumstances where pethidin should be used. We have one or two patients who require it because they have problems with other drug profiles. But pethidin is just not a great drug. And this idea that you can't use it in pancreatitis due to spasm of the sphincter of Oddi, I still hear that occasionally. That is also just rubbish, given morphine. So let's keep it simple. Paracetamol, non-steroidals, the opiates we've talked about. We're not going to think about buscopan. We're not going to think about tramadol. And we're not going to think about pethidin. And the last one I always like to mention is just the idea of giving diazepam for back pain. So diazepam does have a place in the management of some painful conditions, but it is not to treat their pain and it is not a muscle relaxant. It's going to relax the patient. And as we talked about before, part of our management of pain is to manage the patient's anxiety and those other aspects of psychological elements that are causing their pain to worsen. So there is a place for those medications, but please don't think that they're painkillers or muscle relaxants. Primary care colleagues will probably not thank you if you suggest to a patient who's got chronic pain that starting them on gabapentin in the emergency department is going to relieve their pain overnight. Firstly, pharmacologically, that's not going to work. And secondly, managing chronic pain patients, it's probably not a good idea to start that drug in the ED. That's something that should be done in conjunction with their chronic pain service or with their family practitioner. Chronic pain is a really different topic. The causes of their pain are very, very different to the ones we're talking about here in the acute pain situation. And that's a time to ask for senior help and also to get involvement from the GP, their family practitioner and the chronic pain service, definitely. As ever, Simon, we want to keep things simple. We've just talked about the things we don't like once more to reiterate the things we do like so that you get a very clear message from us about this hugely important topic in the ED. Pain relief, get in there early and give the pain relief the patient requires. Final comment from me. I think all of that's excellent. If you do all of these things, you'll be a good doctor and your patients will like you. It makes a real difference. Don't just think of pain relief as a single moment in time. Ensure that either you, your colleagues or your system goes back and reassesses, reassesses, reassesses. And in a future podcast, we'll talk about the use of PCAs in the ED, which might be a solution to that. But unless you're using PCAs on a regular basis, make sure that you've got a system for going back and making sure that patients remain pain-free, not just for that first 10 minutes that you see them. And just like vital signs, they're not something only to be done when the patient arrives. They're to be done throughout the whole of the patient being with you in the emergency department under your care. And that's the same for pain scores. Keep going back. 
How are you feeling now? Can I help you with anything else? Again, that not only reassures them that they're being cared for, but it helps you keep an eye that their pain is reduced as much as possible. And our aims really should be at the end of all this, a pain-free emergency department. So we hope that's been useful as part of this induction series. Please don't forget that there's many other podcasts that cover topics that will be useful for people just starting out in their emergency medicine career. Go back and have a look at those. Feel free to contact us via Twitter or the blog site. We hope this has been useful. It'll certainly be useful to your patients. Enjoy your emergency medicine. Take care, everybody.